Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right. Absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 784th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from Goodness Grows Organics in Asheville, North Carolina, and I am here with Bill McDormand. Hello, Bill. Hello. Goodness grows. That sounds yeah. like a great venture. <laughs> right? Goodness grows organics is what we're calling it. And then oh. Heidi came up with it and we'll see what I end up growing, but I'm actually looking to get certified organic. That was one of my visions, dreams, desires when we moved here was to actually farm. Yeah. I've been talking about it. And yeah, I had the third of an acre in Phoenix and yes, it had an old growth food forest. And yes, we ate food from it every day yeah. but i really want to get into the production i want to get into production yeah i think uh, benjamin farr a good friend of mine once said that um, it's something that all farmers share and that is after you have your space no, no matter how small it is when you start you after you do it and you do it well you want a little bigger you want more production, right? Mm-hmm. And then once you get that down, then you want more production. Clear mm-hmm. up into the tens of thousands of acres that the farmers in Montana have to grow wheat. And so, yeah, yeah it's just a natural outgrowth. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, one, one of the things that I did this summer, some of you all may know this. One of the things that I did this summer was I actually planted 100 elderberry trees, bushes, plants in the ground. That's serious uh, farming. That's some, yeah, I'll go there. That's some serious, we'll see. Well, the first for, they're berries, but they're, I'm going to grow them out. They're going to be nine foot tall bushes uh-huh. rather than trees because I could grow them either way, but I'm going to grow them out as bushes. And so the first year, this year is all about growing out roots. Okay. Next year will be about shoots, growing out the branches, getting the structures in place. And then the third year we'll start producing fruit. And interestingly enough, I've had the cooperative extension here and a couple other people tell me that people will be interested in the elderberry flowers. Yeah, that's true. Elderberry, yeah, it's for tea as a medicinal 
Is that uh, good question? I'm still learning maybe? it. I, you know. I'm still learning it. Yeah. All right, let's get this show on the road. I am here with Bill McDormand. He is a lifelong seed saver and educator. He did our seed school online course, which, by the way, we have marked down to $29 for the nine lesson course and all kinds of content. You want to definitely jump in and get that if you're interested in seed saving. Then we'll talk about that toward the end. Tonight, we're talking about grains. Our modern day grains have gone through huge genetic changes, and many would say not particularly for the better. There is a hearkening back to ancient and heritage grains that are better for bellies, taste great, and easy to grow. Join us for the seed chat to learn about the fresh flower movement and how it is taking the country by storm. So how did you get interested in grains? That's what I, let's start there. I know it's been about 15 years coming, right? I got interested actually in growing grains because of Evan Sopro, who was an intern and then became the farm manager at Native Seed Search. He came in one day and said, this local food thing that they've got going, especially in in Tucson, is incredible. The farmer's markets and the co-op, everybody seems to be supporting it. And he goes, it's all well and good. I love it. He said, but Bill, that's the icing on the cake. Mm. We need the cake, which was like one of those moments, right? When yeah. I started thinking about it. So you do, if you do any kind of research, you'll show up between 60 and 80. Some people say 90% of all of the calories that we consume come from grains. It's either the major substance in our diets. It's all the bread and the pasta, the complex carbohydrates we take in, or it feeds the animals that we eat for all the meat. So you have to put that in that category because a yeah. lot of our meat is grain fed. And then I realized I'd spent my whole life trying to be self-reliant, sustainable, regenerative agriculture and had missed 70% of it. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, that's a real... And that's not quite true because in this category of grains, corn is put in. And I've always been growing corn in some ways. It wasn't until I moved to Tucson that I started growing it for tortillas to eat it as flour. But it's a big wake-up call. And so that's what got me started. But the, the most exciting part was that after having honed my growing skills mm-hmm. over 40, almost 40 years or whatever, 35 years on vegetables... And some fruit trees. Grains are the easiest thing I've ever grown. It'd be one thing if you had to get into a whole new thing when you're older and try to figure out how to grow and it's going to be this overwhelming. No, not another thing I have to learn. It's like the grains are going, they're almost pre-growing. They're just, it's grass, as you say sometimes. Oh, you know where that came from? No, I don't. a, A year and a half ago when we moved here, the developer that is building the houses that go down the road that we walked. Remember when you were here, we walked that road. They use grasses to hold up the berms and the grasses, they don't mow it. They just throw the grasses in place and let them grow. And I was walking. I remember the moment. I remember the moment. It was 200 feet from my back door. I was taking Kismet for a walk and there was this dense hedge of grasses that were about three feet tall 
with seed heads on the top of them. And it occurred to me, grains are just grasses. (laughs) And literally they didn't do anything. They put the seeds down. That was it. They put the seeds down. The grains grew. And it was like, whoa, all right, that's interesting. Yeah. A lot of home gardeners may have, especially in the West, if you get out into farmat subdivision and sort of stuff, one of the soil covers that they use out there a lot or soil conditioners is annual rye, they call it. Oh, yes. Sicale cereal. That's just rye. It's been the same grain for what at least 10,000 years, maybe longer. Yeah. It's just a wild grass taking care of itself. And it takes care of itself so well. We're starting to get reports. One from Flagstaff, where uh, Steve Alston was driving to work one day. He worked for Gore Enterprises, Gore-Tex. Uh people driving to work one day from his house and he sees he goes that looks like rye along his road and thought about it and i think it it took a year he was driving by it again same time of year and saw it again with big seed heads as you said and did research this time went down to the county figured out that it had been growing there was a coach field was the name of the farmer at the time a hundred years ago in flagstaff was growing rye in that field and all we can figure is that it escaped along the fence lines in the road and it's still there it's been taking care of itself for almost 100 years and we've that we've got reports now from paradise utah somebody finding uh, joseph lofthouse found one and the tehachapi grain project in california found a field up above from the 30s that had rye, that's just taking care of itself. So I guess this is a nice introduction into talking about grain. Easy. (laughs) If they take care of themselves, all you have to do is plant them and get out of the way. You can, and if you can search and help us find those rye, especially that have naturalized in Mm. your area, wow. You, or get some of the seeds from an area where they've been naturalized that's similar to your climate. Yeah then that's just bonus. That's just incredible. Awesome. So that's a great introduction. Where do we start? Where do we go next, Bill? But let me address some of the fears that people have. Let me just tell a quick story. They started a um, barley project, winter barley in the Verde Valley in Arizona, where I was living. And um, the idea was to get the largest grower in the Verde Valley who grows corn to switch to winter barley. And he goes, I can't, I've got a market for my corn. I've been doing it for decades. And and they said, but yeah, you're using 80% of the water out of the Verde River in the summer. He had the water right. And they want the water for wildlife, for bird watching, for all the other things in the Verde Valley. And so it was the Nature Conservancy got together with some folks and got him to switch to winter barley, and which needs hardly any water. And he's not taking any water out in the summer. It was Interesting. Like, so they went down the path of starting, uh, trying to get a malt business started mm-hmm. so that barley could be used for beer and the craft beer industry in Arizona. And, and I'm not sure at what stage all of that is, but that was the idea is to get them into a grain. But the first thing he did, Greg, is go out and buy a 21 foot combine to grow his barley. That's really? the first thought that hit his head. And that, and for many of us Americans, you can't grow grain unless you've got a combine and a big field and the grain elevator and all of this stuff. That's how we do grain in this country. 
Uh-huh. And so I think a lot of us in the organic food movement over the last couple of decades didn't think about it because we all thought the same thing. You had to be big to make it work. And there is an economies of scale and there, there is a real economic value to being bigger. However, our discovery in the ancient inheritance grains, especially for home use, is that we can garden them. The first thing this gentleman should have done in the Verde Valley was gone out and planted a thousand different kinds of barley in small plots mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. which ones work best for him. So for the rest of his days, he didn't have to use water and chemicals and whatever that he didn't have to, right? Start small, start all your projects small and then gear up. That's what we're learning how to do. I want to touch on this. Right. You found a grain when you were working at native seed search, Sonoran white wheat is what mm-hmm. it's become called. And you help start small and go big. I love this story. Can you share that? Well, that's a good story about once you start small and that, let me just emphasize that point again, is that we generalization, you can get about seven loaves of bread on a hundred square foot of grains in your backyard. So everybody listening tonight and listening on the podcast when it comes out next month, if you have a hundred square feet, how many plants is that? It's a lot of them, (laughs) a hundred or more. It may be a hundred plants. That that gets into something and people may have questions is that we're finding with the ancient inheritance grains, if we space them farther, put yeah. them a foot apart instead mm-hmm. of really close together the way they do modern grains, we actually get more grain on top. That they that's how they were tended for all these generations. And so nice. we're just relearning how to do things on a small scale. And make no mistake, the majority of the grain on the planet until the last two generations was grown in smaller scale. It may not have been 100 square foot. That uh, statistic comes from Dr. Ralph Bush at the Air Force Academy. He's a professor there. And he grows his own grain in his own backyard, makes his own (laughs) bread and his own cookies. And he's found a way to do that. And it's just a fascinating adventure for him because the the ancient and heritage grains are just mind-blowing diversity and color and shape and flavor. And so when you get it into a backyard, you can play with all that stuff. Great. Love it. And let's go back to Native Seed Search. All right. And all right. So, I, I want you to, because this is a really impressive story about the amazing abundance of nature. So I didn't discover white Sonoran. It's been in the Southwest for 400 years. I happened to be director at Native Seed Search when a project that was under the umbrella of Native Seed Search and with the work of a lot of really great people that are still working on grains got involved. But so that the story, a simplified story, and it may not be exactly true. I don't think anybody knows for sure, but Father Kino was the first missionary to Arizona, came up the Santa Cruz River. San Javier, it was Tumacacri, Tubac, San Javier were the missions. He would go 20, 30, 40 miles and then start another mission as he Mm -hmm. came up the river. It's really likely he brought Sonoran white wheat with him. It was known as wafer wheat. This is what you did in the Catholic Church. It was the body of Christ. You had to make the wafers, right? That was always part of the mission. So they brought this new grain to the new world 400 years ago and shared it 
And actually, that's where the flour tortilla was born. Among the Southwest Indians, Native American people, first peoples, were already making tortillas out of corn. And now they had another grain. They could grow it in another season. It started to fill in. Actually, there's evidence they grew it in both the winter and the summer. Oh, interesting. It's highly adaptable. It's hugely, it's one of the most delicious grains in the world. It's used for pastries. It's one shortcoming, if there is one, is that it doesn't lift. The glutens in it aren't quite good enough to make a big, fluffy loaf of bread. It's used all over the world for pastries because of that. All right. We only had a small amount, very small amounts that they had rediscovered of what they think was, you know, the lineage from Father Kino, this 400 year old adapted Sonoran white wheat. So we're talking a couple of seeds, a hundred pounds. At Native Seeds Church, when I got there, there were only a few pounds, I think. Okay. Wow. While I was there, we grew out an acre of it at the Native Seed Search Farm, and we harvested that. We had worked from a very small amount up to an acre's worth. And so work got out, had this beautiful harvest, got this wheat, and some folks came to me and wanted to buy 400 pounds. They were starting their own project. Yeah. And I got to thinking about it, and we had the 400 pounds, barely, but we did. And they were great people. And I finally thought about it, and I'd been... This is um, brilliant, by the way, everybody. I'd been affected by Vandana Shiva and her great work at Navdanya in India. And I remember yeah. her saying this, and it popped into my head. It's that whenever a farmer needs seeds, all the farmers around them have to make sure they get their seeds. Mm-hmm. It's good for your community. Yeah. And, it, and if and when they can, they will return twice as much, okay? So I was thinking about that and I didn't even know what kind of quantities or if that was possible for what they were doing. But I said, okay, I'm not gonna sell it to you. I'm, we're a nonprofit, we're a native seed church. And they looked so down for just a second. And then I said, I'm gonna give it to you. <laughs> I'm gonna be like the thousand year old farmers in India and we're gonna give you the grain. However, if and when you can, I want you to return twice as much. And I said, okay. And they said, okay. And what I realized in this is that when we buy and sell things, especially Mm -hmm. seeds, we are cutting ourselves off from each other. You get the money, those are your seeds, you can do whatever you Mm -hmm. want with them. But if they have to return twice as much to make the deal work, you're worried about them. You're still in the game a little bit. You want to make sure they're successful, whatever that is. And they want to be successful to pay you back. Otherwise, they feel bad. And so it builds community. I watched that happen in this transaction. So anyway, I forgot all about it. I'm busy. I never saw seeds as director. I was dealing with insurance companies and land leases and the well, the water rights at the farm. And there is just all this stuff coming down. A million dollar nonprofit. And I get a call one day toward the end of my tenure as director there. You were there, what, about three years? It was a more than, it was probably two. Two years. So at least this, two all years. Ha- this all happened in two, maybe three years. Yeah. Well, you can get two or three growing seasons, depending on how things work down yeah. there. Anyway, I got a call from Jeff Zimmerman, as I remember. And he said, Bill, where do you want us to put all the Sonoran wheat? 
And I go, what do you mean? He says, we've got about 4,000 pounds for you. <laughs> and I go, I didn't order 4,000 pounds of Sonoran white weed. As far as I know, there aren't that, there isn't that much. And he goes, oh yeah, buddy. Yeah. And it's yours. And I go, what's going on? And he goes, remember that 400 pounds that you gave away? They grew twice as much, which was, by the way, about 140th of their crop is what they had to return. They gave it, we knew you were busy. So we gave it to another farmer and they grew it out and they got their double and they, and he goes, now we've got all this grain. We don't know where we can, we run out of people to give it to. <laughs> wow. And so we're going to return it to you guys. Nice. So it finally came back. And so that's how communities should work. That's how scaling up. So let me give you another a thumbnail. It depends on the grain you're growing, whether or not you're going to get seven loaves of bread out of hundred square feet. Yeah. It depends on a lot. That's an estimate. But another estimate is that many of the grains that we found, and we found almost 300 of them uh -huh. in our quest to find out which ones grow best for the farmers in the Rocky Mountain West. Sometimes we only get 50 seeds out right. of the Genetic Resources Information Network with U.S. government or somewhere else or a small. This is, we're just now rediscovering all this stuff. So if you plant 50 seeds and you do it really well, you can get a pound or more of grain. Or more or more off of 50 seeds. You take that pound and plant it and you can get a hundred or more pounds. And if you have a hundred pounds, you can plant an acre and you're in business. Then you can go down and buy your 21 foot combine if that's what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And so most of what my experience in the grain world so far, just to clarify for people, is growing small amounts of grains in my own backyard because that is the most important thing that needs to happen right now. You want to help our planet. If you're worried about climate change, if you're a gardener and you really, really want to help, in my humble opinion, get as many different kinds of grains in your yard as quickly as you can and start growing them. And you don't have to know what they are. We're doing more and more Grexes. We've got, I sent you one on rice. We've got them yep. barley and wheat. Grow hundreds of different varieties all mixed together. We don't have time to do systematic trials anymore. Just see which ones work and save the seed from those and start scaling those up. If it gets to the point where you've got hundreds of pounds or your county extension agent comes down and wants to know, what the hell is this? You guys are growing, this is great. Said so He goes, what is it? You say, sir, that's your job. You take this back to the university and you tell me what it is because we, we did the hard work. Yep. We sifted through thousands of grains collectively and figured out what worked. And I think that is going to have value. As I look at the energy and the water and the food systems yes. and how they're being stressed, I think it's going to make everybody feel a little bit better to bring in. And this is happening all over the world. People are shortening their supply lines and relearning skills from a generation or two and resizing their grain growing and finding out what works for them personally and their community. Awesome. So Lori has a question. All right. She says there are both warm season and cool season grains. There are warm season, cool season is more often um, used at, or as adjectives for wild grasses or even lawn grasses. And it refers to when they get green naturally. So uh, things like Bermuda grass 
get green in the summer when it's hot. Summertime, yep. So that would be a warm season grass. But there are lots of grasses like rye grass that are cool season uh-huh. grasses. Mm-hmm. That are, yeah, they'll get um, green at the shoulder seasons if you're farther north. If you're in Arizona, it could last throughout the winter. And so that's not quite the terminology. What she may mean, though, is that uh, there are grains that have the label of being um, spring planted mm. or winter grains or fall planted grains ah. to grow either through a hot period or through a cool period. And that's really important for farmers on an industrial scale. They Those guys have dialed in the needs of these plants and provide all the chemicals and all the herbicides and pesticides, whatever it takes to get them to maximize their yields. And if you're doing that, there are varieties that give you higher yields either in the winter or the summer. So you would never plant a winter grain in the summer or summer grain in the winter. However, what we found is that as we're starting to sift through the literally thousands of varieties that are out there, Um, Many of them work in both. And sometimes they work in the opposite where you live. And so I think a a more intelligent directive or set of adjectives at this point for us as small scale grain growers is Uh to try everything and try it all the time and see what works for you and go through this process again so that if and when we scale it up, they'll know which works well where. But we've had some real surprise along those lines. So, Leo wants to know, are you talking about the rye that is planted as a cover crop? I am talking about the rye that is normally planted as a cover crop. Now, if you want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing, that's where Latin helps. So it's usually if you're ordering your seeds or if you have them from someone else, you're, what you want is secale, cereal. Secali is the genus, cereal is the species. So mm. that's the botanical name for the plant that you want. Now, it's I, it can be conceived, confusing because there are grasses that are called rye grass that are yes. loliums. They have completely different genus and they don't create the tall stalk or have the seeds. But uh-huh. Normally, most farmers, if you're using rye as a cover crop and plowing it in after it gets green because of all that nitrogen you're putting in your soil, mm-hmm. you're using Sicali cereal. And that leads to another thing. If you're already market farming or a serious gardener and you're cover cropping, grains, baby. This is for thousands of years. This is what they've been used for. You can double crop. You can, so I grow my grains through the winter. And um, before I harvest them, I start planting either my corn or my peppers or my tomatoes right into the grains and let them there. So I plant them a foot apart, my grains. Uh-huh. So there's room. There's hold a on, hold plant. on. Yeah. One seed a foot apart, or do you put yeah. two seeds no, in a hole? I put these, these things have been so good. I'm the first year I was a little nervous and put two or three or four. No, I just put one seed in each hole and it's wow. been working wonderfully. And then, so I'll come and put a tomato seed, a pepper seed, a corn seed in between them along about next May when I normally plant those. And I'm mm-hmm. planting right in my grain. And then they'll come up two or three, four weeks. By then my grain's ready to harvest. I wow. just chop off the tops. I leave the roots in and I'm growing my other crops. And so it keeps my soil covered. 
So if you get a seed head on these grains and you cut them, yeah, do they shoot another seed head up or are they done? You don't do that until they're dry. Uh, they're they're straw colored and dry. You want to leave them on there as long as you can. Yeah. So, so basically, yeah, no, they're done. When we're growing grains, we're growing them and they grow and they're annuals. Basically, die. That's it. Yeah. But you got all that straw for your compost or your mulch. Yeah. And you got your bread and cookies on top and pasta on top. Got a lot. Got to love it. Yeah. When and you've got your, as he pointed out, you've got your cover crop. Yeah. Bonnie wants to know when, when in relation to your last frost, should you plant grains? Um, it doesn't seem to matter. So when she says last frost, that's in the spring. Almost all the grains that I've been growing, which are the einkorns, emmers, modern wheats, barley, oats, triticale, um, frost doesn't seem to bother them. I planted in November, December, January, and February for my winter grains and gotten crops all by June. Everything's out of my garden. Didn't wow. seem to matter that much. I prefer to plant November, December because it's so much fun to see them come up. And what will happen is if it's cold and snowy and frosty, they won't. They And they'll just wait until it's time. But it always surprises me. Now, I'm talking Arizona. If you're in a snow country, you yep. would want to plant them just before. We would or would not? Just before the snow comes or the ground is frozen, is what mm -hmm. I would say. To let them get started. They're hardy enough to make it through in almost all the cases. There are exceptions and there are grains. But again, if you're growing hundreds of them, let's see which ones work, where you are, with the equipment you have, when you can plant. That's mm -hmm. part of it. Don't baby them. Well, because that that's the whole process of getting seeds that work best for you. If you're not babying them and you find one that thrives, yay, right? That's it. That's what we're looking for. And again, we're all, we've been taught to to look for the rules and to try to follow them. Oh, don't plant before the first frost or after the last one. Don't plant right. your, your summer grains in the winter or your winter grains in the summer. All this stuff and all of that can and will help you maximize yield if that is your goal. Mm-hmm. So always pay attention to what everybody's talking about and listen to those. However, for what I've been doing and for the majority, I would have to say the people in this new fresh flower, or many of them are growing on such a small scale in their own yards and gardens again. That's not the highest value yet. Once you figure out what your grains are and when to plant them and how they work, then you can start doing the things that will help you scale up. But we have a lot of work to do. And I, by that, we have a lot of unbelievable discoveries to make. I have a picture that I show of a Toulouse emmer that was found in a museum in France, in Toulouse, in a museum. So it was, it was, in, it was found it was as a, a seed. Yeah, it was an old, somehow it had gotten into a museum in Toulouse and somebody got them out and grew them. And some of them worked. If you've been on this program at all, you realize that's not... A miracle. That's what happens all the time, right? Outsmart us and come back. And this, and so we don't know the story before it got to the museum. And I'm sure there's one out there. I have no idea where it came from, but I took an unretouched 
iPhone picture of my Toulouse Emmer in the summer in my yard, and it was brilliant fluorescent blue. It's just not even real. And, and so I'm growing this because of my health. You know, my wife can eat bread again. I've gone back to the older grains and that's a generalization. The older the grains you go, the easier it seems to be on our guts, yeah. all right? So I'm doing it for that reason. I do it because I, it's the easiest thing I've ever done. It gives me more joy and I get more bang out of my buck. I spent time planting one seed a foot apart in my yard. And by the next May, I have grains to go out and hug every morning that make me cry. They're purple and blue. And nice. it's just, that's all just bonus. Right. If you're, if you really want to make a living, maybe what you should do is just do all this and do cut flowers. I don't know. It's just an incredibly wondrous adventure. So that's the work we have to do is just discover all this new colorful stuff. So we got a bunch of questions here. Okay. Uh, Jesus says, so in Northern New Mexico, this sounds like growing garlic. It's, I would grow grains about, I, here's what I'll say about Arizona, where we were just about the time I was out planting my grains. My wife was out planting her garlic. Garlic. Yep, exactly. Grains harvested earlier though. And again, I got a head start. I don't know if you overplant with your garlic, but I planted tomatoes, peppers, and corn in my grains before I harvested them. So I got another month of growing nice. while the grains are drying out. So that's a bonus for those. Do greens need do grains need full sun? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, um, this is the grass. More, more sun the better. More sun the better. More what sun are the some better. Charles wants to know what are some of the gluten-free non-wheat grains we can plant? Oats. Uh barley? However, there are, you hear stories about it, but yeah, you don't see very many gluten-free beers mm -hmm. and that's because of the mm. malt and that's because of the barley and the only one i really know about is that i that is certified gluten-free yeah. that you can buy are oats for sure oats, now yeah. those are the major grains amaranth millet there are lots of other grains they are euphemistically called the lesser grains uh, there you go and that's, uh, that's a colonial term that we should probably banish. <laughs> there you go. Wendy Weber says, I think barley has gluten. Double click on gluten. We're all gluten this, gluten that. The amount of gluten, the kind of gluten. So my wife is eating einkorn bread. When she was gluten-free for a year and a half, einkorn is an ancient grain, ancient wheat that has gluten, but mm -hmm. it's different. It has 16% more protein, has a different number of chromosomes yeah. in its structure. And we sourdough ferment it, all right? So we use the old-fashioned way of letting the yeast rise over 24, 48, even longer. That tends to change it. Think about those things when you think about whether a grain has gluten or not. Because there well, are people that are eating ancient inherited grains now that, were, that had to be gluten-free before. So I want to touch on a couple things, and then we've got a bunch of questions I really want to right, make sure we get it. through them. Yeah. Yeah. But Part of the gluten issue, in my understanding, is that it's been so hybridized that the new wheats, the gluten in there doesn't agree with us, number one. Number two, what they do with non-organic grains 
is they spray them with Roundup to kill them, to dry them out. And then they harvest them. So those grains have Roundup on them. So the gluten issue might not just be gluten. It might also be the Roundup, right? Right. And so, you know, call it the gut issue. Yeah. There are people that have celiacs and you can do a genetic test for that. And if you have gluten, doesn't matter what, you've got to stay away from it. That's just, that's a hard line. But there are millions of people now that don't have celiacs that have gut issues. And you're right. I think it's modern yeast. They're getting this in two to three hours doing what it used to take two to three days as far as digestive with yeast. You've got the Roundup issue and it's in the rain in Montana as a friend. They're doing it so much that it's in the rain and it's starting to affect the organic grains that are being and so there, you can go off on glyphosate and its problems with your guts all you want, but that could be problem, problematic. And then you're right. Modern wheat is different. And yeah. what they do to it is different in the highly processed. It, you know, when you buy white flour, it's hardly, you know, resembles. It's more velvet than cheese. Right. All right. Yeah. And we could go in. I'm putting together, I'm trying to put together some modules for grain and maybe we can We'll release those together to help explain some of this stuff. All right. Questions. Let's get to these. You've talked about Sonoran white wheat is good for pastries. Yum, yum. What other grain is good for bread? I'll just cut to the chase. And my whole, it's been 10-year adventure now. We invited Sylvia Davatz, D-A-V-A-T-Z. And she's got a, a Northeastern Heritage Grain Alliance. And... She has been growing small scale grains, the old grains, the heritage, the ancient and baking with them. And her conclusion, it was much to my surprise, was spelt. And I asked her why. And there's a whole lecture that goes around this and what's going on with these things. But spelt is a relatively historic or ancient grain has been around for a long time. And it seems to capture, this is the thumbnail, seems to capture the flavor and the nutrition and the protein of the ancient grains, but still bake like more Um, like the modern grains. So if you just want to cut to the chase, I love baking with einkorn and emmer and I use durum even in my baking and I put in some Sonoran, but if I wanted to lift, I, and I use a hard red winter wheat, which mm-hmm. is like the gold standard for bread wheats. I go back as old as I can in the varieties of those. So I use red five, um, especially is one of my favorites. So, cool. and there's a number of other Rouge de Bordeaux was the, for two centuries in France was like the baguette bread. wheat. Hey, Sue says have historically grown garlic thick intensive, but this offers possibilities. Love yeah. that. We planted a seed tonight. Awesome. Jesus, thanks for being here. Wanda and Peter, your thoughts on winter planting grains in zone three, that's Alberta, where we get cold and snow and then get Chinooks with above freezing temperatures that melt the snow. So not cover before before getting cold again. Yeah, I get it. Here's where you're a little bit outside my growing experience. However, so what I would do is walk around in Alberta is one of the great growing regions of the world on large scale. And some of it's done dry land. They just plant 
And if I'm right about that, they plant in the fall. And so oh. I would find out when they're planting their other grains. And that, because that came about with trial and error over a long period of time. There are spring grains planted there too. And there's probably some irrigated, but I would, I, you could probably get more information than you ever want. They're going to, you're going to have to humor them a little bit. If you go talk to a grain farmer or one of their kids that grew up on one of the farms might be a better choice. They're just going to say, don't waste your time. You'll mm -hmm. never get big enough to make it work. I don't know why you're even asking me these questions. And so, but in every population of people, there's somebody with an open mind who remembers back to the way it used to be. Yep. When you used to experiment with small amounts or whatever. So look around and find somebody. And maybe there's a new bakery up there that's already joined the fresh flower movement. And I know there are some. In yeah. Alberta, in some place, maybe in Edmonton or somewhere. And you could do some research. that back and see who's already growing. And maybe the key question is that have you ever grown einkorn or emmer? And that'll get them like, why? What are you talking about? And you're talking about the precursors to modern wheat. And maybe you can get a conversation going that way, but tap into your local knowledge there. Yeah, for sure. All right. Donald wants to know how small of a plot can you grow for your first crop? One seed in a pot. Oh, well, that's easy. You'll get 50 seeds. And then without 50, you can start and you can work your way up. That's the minimum I've ever seen. Somebody was in a trailer and grew einkorn seed for them. Nice. They said, all um, I need is one seed. Okay. You're going to have to return twice as much. Anonymous says, commercial farming in Alberta primarily plants in spring. When we lived in Manitoba, oh. there were some specific varieties of grains for fall planting. All right. But I don't know how much of the fall planting in okay. the Chinook Belt. So there we oh. go. So Alicia has a couple of interesting questions. Any thoughts on wild harvesting or wild foraging grains? That's what einkorn is. That's what rye is. Those are wild grasses. Uh, and people have been saving the seeds from them to make it easier to wildcraft them. They get bigger seeds. They, get, they hold them until you get there. All mm -hmm. those values. And that's been going on with both of those grains for more than 10,000 years. Wow. And yeah, they find corn and the goat grass that it crossed with to create emmer, which has fed the world for several thousand years. Uh -huh. They still grow side by side in a field in Eastern Turkey. So you can go and go out there and do it. Another way to wildcraft grain is there are still wild stands of Teosinte. This would bring it back to the Americas if you can't get over to Turkey outside of Oaxaca. Uh, Teosinte is the wild crop relative of corn. Yep. And it has little hard grains on the top and you can take baskets. They still do and go out and, and harvest the Teosinte. Those are three examples that I cool. know about. All right. Alicia wants to turn her lawn into grains. Just plant right. rye? What I would do is sheet mulch it, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sheet mulch and then plant grains. Yeah. So if, look up in permaculture circles how to sheet mulch, which is basically putting a light barrier over your lawn and then some sort of planting material over it. We've done everything from chips to topsoil. Compost is my favorite. Yep. And then plant your grains into that compost on top and water it. 
and uh, the grass underneath will die because the light's been cut off. You got to do yep. a good job. We cardboard. There's all sorts of things you can do. Don't get the get your seams tight. Overlap. Otherwise, grass will come up through them. But if you get the light barrier good with a permeable surface so that the roots of your grains can grow down through that, they'll grow down into heaven. So oh, nice. the soil structure of grass that's no longer alive is the best there is. I've never had a better yard. And I would then, we don't have time for cover crop. Get as many different kinds of grains as you can and plant them and see if you can find what will work for you. Cool. So Leo's got a couple of things. Let me read them both. I planted... I'm assuming, Leo, you're talking grains. I planted grains in October, September, October. We're going to need to know where you're at all as well. But I was still, it was still small in March. I pulled it out to start gardening. Should I have left it until it died on its own? So let's go there. We'll answer that quickly. And then he's got another one. Well, you, you have to make value judgments about what your space is worth, but I would have left yeah. everything because they're always small in March, but they've already done about 80% of the root growth they need. Oh, yes, of And course. so almost overnight, they'll go from really small to two feet tall. It's You can't even measure it. Uh, he says Philly. Happens. He's yeah. in Philly, zone six. He, he also... Like, again, full sun... Would make okay. if you if they were in the shade, maybe they would never make it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh Leo also says my veggie garden is not as large as you suggested, combined with my flower garden. It is. Can I plant in the would they work well with yeah. flowers? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Plant one Experiment and let us know how it works. As I said, you may end up with cut grains that are worth more than your cut flowers because they're so right. beautiful. Wendy says, my friend of over 60 years invited me to her wedding some time ago. She has a gluten problem and her wedding cake was made from spelt. Wow. Nice. All right. So we've got two more questions here and then we're going to wrap it. Uh, Recommendations on a grain mill. Mock, M-O-C-K, mock mill. You want to grind your grains with stone. And you want to do it horizontally because that way when you break open the shell and the volatile oils are released, which are flavor and nutrition, if it's a horizontal stone mill, those flavors, that oil is ground into the flour so that you can get it. The cheap and easy mills are vertical. You can put way more grain through them faster but you mm-hmm. don't get that added value. And of all the mills that I've seen, and there may be new ones out there, but the gold standard is Mock, M-O-C-K, Mock Mill. And I was told my Mock Mill 200, I could turn on and leave on for 24 hours and grind up enough flour for a whole town. Wow. The engineering inside them is tried and tested. Nice. Mock, M-O-C-K, Mill. Right. Dot U-S is their website. Mockmill.us. Awesome. All right. Uh, Jesus says a couple of sources for these grain seeds. That's what I've been working on for about um, passionately for about six years is trying to find sources for all of these grains and make them available. And at the current time, I have about 110, I think, of the varieties I've been talking about available in small packets. Uh, for a $5 donation and I'll mail them out to you. And I don't uh, get to the mail order room more than once a month, but I'll put on my website when I'm going to be shipping next. 
And yes, yeah, you can find it at seedsave.org. That's been my website. Leanne Hill and I are calling ourselves the Heritage Grain Alliance to keep this distribution work because that's the most important thing right now. Yeah, so I, yeah, I'd love to send you some grains. And if you've big got time. questions, you can sign up for a little newsletter there. You can write, there's an email on there for you to write. Yeah. Awesome. And Bill and I, about a decade ago, created Seed School Online. It's a nine class course that we put together and it's available. You can go to seedschoolonline.com. And we have, as I stated at the beginning, we've made it such that is ultra affordable. It's $29. And it's really your life work, isn't it, Bill? Yeah, it's, we need millions of seed savers. We need to rediscover that it, there's, it's a biological necessity. The industrial yeah. food system isn't going to last. It can't. It can't. It's what we know about biology. And the only way to change it is to decentralize it. And you can't, and we're doing that with food, but we don't have local seeds yet. So we need yeah. people to do that. And so I've been teaching for more than 40 years. And what I have learned through hundreds of presentations and scores of classes now is all in that seed school online yeah. and put together at a time when the jazz band was hitting the hi-hat. Everything, <laughs> all the switches were on and everything was working when we did that. So yeah. it's really a wonderful piece. So Seedschoolonline.com. You can go there for more information on that. And seedsave.org is where you can find out about all these grains. Thank you very much, Bill, for joining us yet again. I love catching up with you like this once a month. Thank you. This is really fun. And we've had so many questions. Let's um, dive into grains again. In the all future, right. everybody will do that. All right. Excellent. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, everybody, for all joining right. us. We appreciate you. Take care. Have a good one. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.